because when you get down to it, what religion asks of a an adherent is a pretty sophisticated understanding of of what a human being is. Hello, the internet. You're listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, uh, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and now 50% more award-winning than before. Uh, my nonfiction book, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem. Since the last time we talked, it won two more awards, uh, bringing the cumulative total for both of those books up to six, which is an increase of 50%. Um, once again, don't please don't ask me which awards those are because they are not very prestigious at all, but they are technically awards and I am going to crow about them and you can deal with it. Anyway, for this episode, I was very pleased to be able to welcome on author William Giraldi, uh, who is best known for writing the novel Hold the Dark. Uh, it's a thriller set in Alaska, and it is now a major motion picture from Netflix. Um, so kind of a big deal, certainly a bigger deal than I am. And we talked about how he was raised Catholic and left the Catholic faith, but eventually found his way back to it, at least in a metaphorical aesthetic sort of way. Um, he's a really thoughtful guy. It was a really interesting conversation. I will flip you over to it and I will see you on the other side. I am very pleased to be sitting here with Mr. William Giraldi. William, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Luke. Did I pronounce your name right? Is it Giraldi or Giraldi? Giraldi, that's right. Giraldi, right on, right on. I figured, after I said it, I realized, have I been mispronouncing it in my head all this time? But uh, William Giraldi is the uh, author of several books, including American Audacity, The Hero's Body, Busy Monsters and Hold the Dark, which is now a major motion picture from Netflix. If, if something is on Netflix, is it a major motion picture <laughs> or is it just sitting there on Netflix? Yeah, the, the sticker they put on the book said major motion pictures. So. <laughs> I think that's what that's a sticker. That's like the standard sticker they put on every book that gets adapted into a movie. Right. That's right. That, that, there's that's no right. there's no such thing as a minor motion picture in the publishing world. You, you never think, see a book that says now a minor motion picture. I think I think my <laughs> film was pretty minor compared to Spider-Man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, this when you think about it, there's a pretty big spread in like the kinds of movies that get made, right? There's like the $200 billion blockbusters all the way down to like, you know, Bubba in his backyard with a Super 8 camera or whatever. Um, right, but you know, <laughs> I, I was, um, they did such a fantastic job with, um, uh, uh, with with my book i when they came to me and and said that um that they wanted to do the the film i one of the first things they said was that they wouldn't change anything about the book mm -hmm. and i said you probably say that to all the boys <laughs> uh, and i've heard nothing but horror stories 
um, about how studios change the book, the books. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. And, um, you know, they were, they were telling me the truth. Uh, they, right were, they were uh, so nice to me. And the cinematography of the film is, uh, is astounding. The acting couldn't be better. They included me in almost every step of the process. Um, I worked pretty closely with Macon Blair, the, uh, the screenwriter, uh, who's also the producing partner of, of the director, Jeremy Saunier. So it was a, it was just a totally positive experience from, from start to finish. Uh, I think I was most astounded by the, the cinematography they shot in, um, in Canada. Uh, the book takes place in an Alaskan village, a very remote Alaskan village, but it's cheaper to shoot in Canada. And so they shot not far from Alaska uh, and the aerial shots are, are really stunning. Netflix set up a, private screening for me when the film first came out and and on a wednesday morning at 10 o'clock a rainy day i went into downtown boston to the big lowe's super theater there at park street on tremont avenue and i was alone at 10 o'clock in the morning in about a 1000 seat theater watching my film on a screen the size of a city block it was a surreal experience so yeah, hold, hold the dark at a Netflix near you. Um, yeah, <laughs> that sounds pretty pretty amazing, actually. Um, I uh, got myself a film studies degree in my undergrad years. Never really used it for anything. Have yeah. written a couple of novels since then, though. I don't know. I, I guess I am not high profile enough uh, at the moment, at least, to <laughs> have a novel adapted into a film. Um, but I've often, um, wondered how I would feel about it <laughs> if it happened. Like, I don't know. I, I guess to me, like, I'm always very philosophical about it. Like, you know, I wrote the book, the book was what I wanted to make. It's done. I don't need the validation of having it made into a movie or whatever, but you know, at the same time, it would be very cool to have that sort of validation. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. What feels the best is ca- cashing the check and. Oh, I'm I'm sure it does. <laughs> when it doesn't, when it doesn't bounce, uh, that's uh, that was my wife's first comment after you know when my agent at CAA in in LA contacted us to say that that it was going to happen that that Netflix signed on and I said to I said to my wife I said you know dear it looks as if uh, it looks as if Netflix will make the film. And she said, oh, oh, good. Just be sure their check doesn't bounce. Uh, <laughs> you know, there was no like, there was no, oh, con- you know, congratulations, dear. Um, and isn't that wonderful, dear? Um, I don't think I ever even saw the, the check. I think it went right to her. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, all of these kids we have are phenomenally expensive, uh, Luke. So it, it, came, it came in handy. You, you won't believe the amount of Cheerios that gets eaten in this house. You know, I believe it. I believe it. How many kids do you have out of curiosity? That's a good question. I have got, um, <laughs> uh, three or four at least. Uh, let's see. There's, uh, there's Ethan. He's the oldest. He's 12. And then there's, uh, oh, there's Aiden. He's next. He's, um, he's nine. And then we have a baby in there at about five. It's Caleb. Caleb is five. 
Is there someone in between Aiden and Caleb? The, uh, I think that's it. I think it's those three. But you know, <laughs> but you know, Luke, it, it, it feels like four or five. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of having, having too many kids to count, that's a pretty good segue into what we're here to talk about. I think, <laughs> which is uh, your Catholic upbringing. I, you know, I read, I read, um, obviously I, I, I read hold the dark. Um, I also read that article you published in, I believe Commonweal was it about, um, leaving the Catholic faith of your youth and then maybe coming back to it a little bit, at least in aesthetic sense, which I'm really honestly excited to hear you, um, talk about in a little more depth. We've done a lot of, we do a lot of episodes about religion on this show. Um, a lot of episodes about losing faith, a lot of episodes about finding faith, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, about this story. So why don't we um, why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your your Catholic upbringing? It was it was pretty traditional and and provincial. I'm from a real small town in man in New Jersey, a, a small mm-hmm. town called Manville. It's a working class uh, factory town. When I was growing up there, uh, half the town. W- w- was uh, us Italian Catholics and the other was the Polish uh, uh, Catholics um, on the other on the other side. So it was it was just us Poles and and Guineas, you know, running around Manville, but all of us Catholic and and just a matter of which church did you, did you go to, or which Catholic school in Manville did you go to? Christ the King, where I went, or Sacred Heart, where uh, where where others went. So. I'm not sure there was anything super out of the ordinary. Uh, mass on Sunday, uh, you know, reverence for the Gospels, um, the Catholic school. I mean, when I when I was in parochial school, that's where most of it came from. I write in the Hero's Body, my my memoir called The Hero's Body. I write about that school and um, the nuns there and what their readings of the gospels did for me in terms of my conception of aesthetics of poetry of what i wanted uh, my future work to sound like i didn't have any idea at the time that this catholic upbringing would come to play an important aesthetic role in my work by the time i got to be a teenager, I was doing what all teens do, which is to rebel against the foundations upon which you were set. The foundations upon which I were set all seemed to me pretty conventional enough. And I was looking for something more exciting. I had always been a reader and I I had really opened myself up to, to, to literature in a way that kids around me weren't doing and Mm. i think what happened was when catholicism or christianity or religion in general ceased to work for me i picked up a a new religion this is what we do when when the old gods don't work anymore we find new gods and if we can't find them we make them Mm. so my gods changed from the gods of christianity to the gods of of literature like milton and homer Mm. Poe and Don and and so 
by the time I was 18, 19, I had fully rejected all of the dogmas and the catechisms and the liturgy you know, and, 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 and the liturgies of, of my youth and my Catholic schooling. Um, I think that as well is standard enough. What might be a little different is that I, I replaced those gods with these literary heroes you know, Flannery, Flannery O'Connor was a was a big deal to me. Walker Percy was a was a big deal to me. And what was interesting, I think, is that I was gravitating toward these Catholic writers, not just the Catholic writer, not just Dante, not just Augustine or or Aquinas, all of whom I was pretty schooled in by, by that point. But the the secular Catholics, if you will. And so by the time um, I had got a, got a hold of Shelley and Schopenhauer and, and Nietzsche and, and Russell and the other philosophers that I was studying in my mid to late 20s, by the time I had got a, a hold of them, my relationship to Catholicism was almost completely dead. And it wasn't until my first novel was published in 2011, a, a kind of um, wild romp of a, of a book, a, a kind of a picaresque called Busy Monsters, an absurdist comedy. That book came out in 2011. And one of the critics who wrote about the book was a conservative uh, Jew-ish writer at Commentary Magazine. And his name was D.G. Myers. And David began writing about my work. He wrote about Busy Monsters, I believe, twice. And what Meyer saw in my work was something that I, ne that I never even knew I was still interested in or hooked mm. on because he found a Catholic sensibility all throughout the book, a Catholic aesthetic all throughout the book. We couldn't get much different, right? Here's a, here is a, a conservative Jewish intellectual I am what I think as a secular uh, lapsed Catholic and we're slowly coming together and we developed a friendship online and through email. And, you know, David was really instrumental in my return to embracing the Catholic aesthetic and even uh, the Catholic faith, if, if not altogether the Catholic church. So I, I am a master of compartmentalizing because there's, there's the Catholic aesthetic, there's the Catholic faith, and then there's the Catholic church. And mm -hmm. while there's some overlap there, they are, to my mind, distinct. That was really the beginning, Luke, of my reevaluation of my own tradition, the reevaluation of my own origins. It's very easy to let Shelley and and Nietzsche run away with you. It's it's very easy to, <laughs> to be intoxicated by that Dionysian splendor. Mm -hmm. and look, when you're young and hungry in your twenties, that's that's the kind of sedition that a young artist needs. The kind of sedition mm -hmm. that's presented by by Shelley and and by Nietzsche. But I've come I've come pretty full circle. Uh, you know, I've, I, I, I went back to Augustine and to Aquinas. I don't read O'Connor and, and Percy in, in the same ways that I used to. Um, 
never mind uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. I should say that this all has something very intimate to do with my kids as well. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you might have experience with your own, um, your own fatherhood, mm-hmm. um, which is nothing so quickly and efficiently brings us back to our own childhoods than having our own children. And so I think that that is what happened. I, I was, I was interested in a different kind of sedition now because it's not all that popular or accepted even to be a Christian or a Catholic. Um, right. Yeah. It, it, it seems that, that, that where once the atheists uh, and the secularists were the rebels, uh, it seems now that professions of faith and, and an adherence to tradition is has become a new kind of of rebellion i should say that i'm not chiefly interested in in it as rebellion Mm -hmm. um i'm just making a connection between my rejection of catholicism in my 20s was an instance of rebellion Mm -hmm. and now i see a different kind of rebellion playing a role in my re-embrace of it that all no doubt sounds pretty confusing to you. No, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking with you. I've been taking notes this whole time about things I want to poke at a little bit. Yeah, please. Um, so if you're ready to get poked at, um, <laughs> I mean, that was a, that was a whole story. So um, I, I want to back up kind of way to the beginning. I, I you know, I, th- I think what, what you said is there's, there's kind of three different aspects to um Catholicism, right? Which there's the there's the dogmas, the, the dog, you know, the spiritual teachings. There's the aesthetics, and then there's the the institution, right? And those seem you seem to have different feelings about all three of those. <laughs> I, I want to work my way there. Um, so why, why don't we start? I, I want I want to go all the way back to your your childhood a little bit, if I could. Um, it sounds like. Reading the piece you wrote for Commonweal, it it sounded like, I I, I think you said something along the lines of like, you didn't really believe the dogmas even back then. Is that accurate? Do you want to talk about that? I think it's accurate. I I think uh, I, I can remember moments of buying in to the dogmas. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I can remember being at confession and having mm. a priest ask me if I masturbated. Mm. And I remember thinking, what does it say about you that you're interested in that? <laughs> uh, uh, but I, that was my first thought. And mm-hmm. there was a, um, a, a, a condemnation of, of that, as you can imagine, right? For sure. <laughs> yourself was not was not uh, acceptable to to that priest, although he was more than happy to hear all about it, wasn't he? Uh, <laughs> but I can remember then masturbating, and and I remember getting a headache once during it. I remember getting a headache. I I I don't know whether I was dehydrated or what, but I could remember being in my room, being you know in in full stroke. And then getting a, a massive headache. And I remember being terrified that I was being punished by God for doing this. 
Mm. But it lasted just that um, just that one masturbatory session. So when I say that that I never bought into the dogmas, uh, generally speaking, that's that's true. Now, when I was a very small child, five, six, seven, um, I'm sure I believed in all of the childish things that children believe in, right? And the magic and, and yeah. the miracles, right? I'm sure I did. Um, but as far as the uh, the the um, incontestable church teachings, um, what is sinful, what is not, what is what is allowed, what is not, um, I never fully fully bought into them. No, I I, I can never remember uh, uh, I don't I don't remember ever uh, taking it all that that seriously. Um, uh, it wasn't until much later, um, when I began to understand more of, um, the mythological aspect of mm -hmm. Catholicism. And when I say mythological, I, I also mean aesthetic, um, the, um, the poetical, um, elements uh, of it, um, which is also, the, which is also the aesthetic of it. So, um, so, yeah, but I, I don't think I was all that abnormal as a child, Luke, um, at this time. I, I don't think that any of my buddies in town, all of any of my fellow uh, Catholic school attendees were, were buying into all of this, all, all, all of that much. We were in Catholic schools because our parents made us go. Mm -hmm. But we were pretty, you know, we were pretty normal kids. I mean, we, we, mm -hmm. we, we weren't we weren't unduly faithful or, hmm. rev or reverent or pious, quite the op opposite, actually. Um, so that's what I say about my about my about my childhood belief in in the the, the dogmas and the tenets um, of Roman Catholicism. Um, I should say that I have much more reverence for them now than I ever did when I was a child. All right, let's let's get to the um, the adolescent rebellion. I have a I have a question that's been nagging at me, just kind of a conceptual question. <laughs> and this was there, this was there before this conversation started, but um, now I'm really wondering about it. Um, and maybe you have thoughts, maybe you don't, but I, I, I want to ask this question and see, see what you have to say. Um, so, I mean, I, I think how you put it was like, teenagers always rebel, right? 20 somethings always rebel. That's like, just what kids do. <laughs> That's a very bad paraphrase. Um, and you know, I feel like that's a very common take on adolescence and maybe it's accurate. I don't know. I guess what I'm wondering is like, if it's accurate, how do traditions survive, right? Like how do, how do religions last for generation after generation? I don't know. Is that is that a fair question? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Not through teenagers. I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't survive through, through teenagers. It, it usually survives through, um, through, through literature and through um, mm -hmm. the re-embrace of, of tradition. Um, once one, uh, works one's way through the spasms of adolescence and teenage sedition is a, a common conception um, 
because most parents with teenagers suffer through it. I guess uh, I, I wonder if that's like, if it's like a general teenage thing or if it's more a uniquely American thing, you know what I mean? Um, I may, maybe, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or not, but it's just something I've been wondering about. Oh, no, I, 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 one of my closest friends is a, is a, is a German, um, in, in Berlin. And, um, uh, from my talks with him, he and I have gone down a, a very similar trajectory, uh, in terms of, uh, believing and, and not believing. Um, so I can't speculate about all of, all of Europe, but I can say that the one close friend I do have was a European. Um, he and I have a lot of similarities in, in our trajectories. Um, now I should say that I hope for my sake that teenage sedition is not a staple because I'm about, <laughs> I'm about to have a 13 year old and, uh, and, and, and Luke, if, if he puts me through even half the hell that I put my father through, um, I'm in big trouble. So uh, let, let's, let's, let's hope that, that, it, that, it's, not, that it's not a staple. Um, but I do think that if traditions survive, they, they survive first through the children um, and then through the adults. I think mm -hmm. the tradition probably skips uh, teenagers uh, entirely. <laughs> <laughs> if, if if they're if they're if they're being teens, I mean, if they're mm. if they're being teens, not which is not to say that there aren't teen believers and teen church groups and all of that. Of course, there are, um, but I know what they're doing behind closed doors. Uh, <laughs> because I, I was doing because I was doing the same thing. Uh, uh, but you, you know, for me, tradition is 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 something that um, is is highly literary. And, and, and written, uh, you know, the only way I know to connect through tradition is, is, is through, is through literature and the gospels to me, even from the beginning, even when I would have considered myself a, a believer in my youth, um, the gospels to me were always more literature than they were, mm -hmm. than they were, um, instructional, instructional manual, mm -hmm. um, what I heard in the gospels was, was a poetry um, that um, was, was pretty uh, titillating for me. Um, I had nuns who could read uh, the uh, gospels in, uh, in Latin. And we had a nun who visited from Italy once and she was visiting for a month or more. And I came upon her one day reading the gospels to herself in Latin. Mm -hmm to herself. And I didn't know what she was saying, but I stood outside her door and I listened to it and it sounded miraculous to me. I, mm. I just wanted, I wanted to keep hearing it, even though I didn't know what I was hearing. I knew that what I was hearing was significant and transformative really, if, if I would welcome it. Um, it just would, it just would take me a while to, to do mm. that, to do that full welcoming. Um, but I think I think it's probably true what I what I say about tradition, or at least it's true for me. Uh, maybe that's all I can say mm -hmm. is speak, speak for myself in, in terms of what tradition means or and how it and how it survives. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I'm embracing it now uh, in a way that I I ha I, I hadn't done in, uh, since I was a child. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think it's intimately tied to 
uh, having my own, having my own children. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I want to talk a little more specifically maybe about your teenage rebellion. I mean, a minute or two ago, you said you, I think your phrasing was you put your dad through hell. Um, Was that mainly through your rejection of the faith or was, was there more to that? Can we talk about that a little bit? Oh, there was much more to it. Yeah. Uh, My father uh, was raised in the church. My father was a Catholic school survivor. Um, (laughs) Actually, here's an interesting question. Did Did your father go through a teenage rebellion against the faith or? No, no, my father, my father never did. My father was a much more obedient person than, than, uh, uh, than, than I was. He had, you know, he had two parents at home. Uh, and so he had sort of an easier, uh, adolescence than I did, um, because he had two, two, two parents at home that he can rely on. Mm-hmm. My mother left, my mother left our family when I and my brother and my sister were very small. And so oh, wow. it was just my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a carpenter, a roofer, a builder, mm-hmm. working 12 hour days. Uh, Gosh. there wasn't, um, the two situations, his upbringing and mine were very, very different. Uh, mm-hmm. so I don't think he put his parents through hell. No, he didn't. He, he didn't mm-hmm. at all. My father was always the, the obedient son. Um, mm-hmm. he was the first person in our family to go to college and I can remember my father saying grace at the table when I was small and not joining in. I, I didn't join in. He didn't make me join in, but I can remember mm-hmm. him doing it. Um, this was in the, in the mid 1980s mm-hmm. uh, when, I was, when I was very small, but I can still remember that. Um, but, but no, my, my, my father and I took very different paths. I, I, you know, I, I don't know a lot about my dad when he was a teenager. I know he was a wrestler. Uh, I know he got good grades. I know he was the obedient son. Um, and I know he was, he was traipsing about town around town with my mother. You know, they were high school, high school lovers and sweethearts and, and, and all of that. Um, so my, my adolescence was much more tumultuous, was much more healthsome much more health uh, than, than my father's was. Um, I would not relive my teenage years if you gave me a, a pot of gold to do it. Um, I'm not sure I'd relive my 20s if you gave me a pot of gold to do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something of a miracle that I'm, I'm sitting here with you half sound um, mm. because um, I really don't know how anyone survives the wild tacking of youth. I, I really don't. Mm. So yeah, I'm terrified because my, my my children are about to. Well, my oldest anyway is 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 going to be embarking upon period of time that was for me extraordinarily difficult. Mm-hmm. I hope you know I hope he's going to have an easier time with it because he has two loving parents in the house and his mother is a is a real powerhouse and and uh, we're pretty much on top of things here, but. My adolescence was chaos, uh, Luke. I had no guidance. I had no real guidance, and I don't fault my father for that. He was on a roof. He was on a roof mm-hmm. 12 hours a day mm-hmm. and came home exhausted. I had a lot of trouble. My, mm-hmm. my, my adolescence in my 20s were, were full of trouble because I didn't have, I didn't have proper guidance. I, 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 I always understood that my father was there for me if I needed him, 
but I never got a lot of life advice, if you will. I never got a lot of go down this path. Don't go down that path. You're getting into trouble because you're doing this. You need to do this instead. Um, there was not a lot of that. And, uh, I wonder about that. I, I mm. wonder about that. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the trouble you got into? Is that sure. fair game? <laughs> sure. Yeah. What'd you, you get up trouble? to? Well, the trouble, the trouble was, was almost entirely psycho emotional. The, mm. the trouble was trouble of anxiety, depression, mm. uh, stupidity, you know, extremely stupid choices with, with stupid friends. Um, name it shop shoplifting uh you know underage drinking uh you know driving underage uh you know your trouble you know embarking upon relationships entering into into sexual relationships with girlfriends far too young to understand the, the importance of it and and to take them seriously i had no no guidance along along those lines um uh we were all you know, very eager for, to, to be, to become sexual. Um, mm-hmm. that's probably normal. I just, I, I just wish I had had a, a little more instruction and a little more warning about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's serious. I mean, you know, you're, for sure. you know, you're drinking, you're, you're pretending to be adults. I mean, this is what teenagers do. They mm-hmm. pretend to be adults. They want to drink, they want to do drugs. They want to, they want to drive cars and, 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 be sexual because that's what adults do and they're mm. eager they're eager for that independence and for that sense of selfhood and that sense of personal agency um so i was no different in that way all i'm saying is that there are a lot of close calls you know mm-hmm. for sure and, and i i wish i'd i i wish i'd been a smarter person mm. uh, you know i think about the car crashes that could have happened again and again and again and the fact that none happened strikes me as completely miraculous hey thanks so much for listening to changed my mind i will flip you right back to that conversation in just a second but real quick i want to talk about the patreon we are a listener supported show everything we do is paid for with donations Your donations help me pay my editor and my producer, and they help me keep the lights on here at Change My Mind. Supporters get all kinds of cool benefits, including early access to episodes, VIP access to both me and the producer, and also a bonus episode every month. This month, we're featuring a conversation with media and new humanities professor Dominic Petman at the New School in New York City. He told me about how he became convinced that maybe humanism is not the correct narrative of the universe. I mean, I also love just cetaceans. I mean, they they came onto land for several million years. They looked around and went, screw this, we're going back to the ocean. (laughs) And so... You know, it's like whales and dolphins saw the, the dangers of coming onto land, growing thumbs and thinking you're the best thing ever. Mm. And um, now they're, they're seeing why. So, I mean, mm. I, I mean I'm, I'm being somewhat glib, but I, I also think there's something to this. Um, I think there's something healthy about uh, questioning <laughs> human exceptionalism um, in a counterintuitive way. 
To hear the rest of that conversation, go to patreon.com slash changedmymind, where you can become a supporter for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you so much to all our listeners and all our supporters for helping us keep thoughtful conversation like this on the internet. I'll go ahead and flip you back to the conversation you were just listening to. I want to make sure I'm getting this right. You said your dad was the first your family to go to college. Is that correct? But he ended up doing roofing for a living. Is there is there a story there, or is there? there what, is, did, what did yeah. he go? Yeah, Can, went, he went to college to. He wanted to be a, a phys ed teacher in Manville High School. Okay. Mm-hmm. He wanted to come back to his hometown, and he wanted to be um, a gym teacher. And he got his degree in physical education. Um, he was a champion wrestler in high school and he wanted to come back and and be the wrestling coach. The problem was once he got back to town and I was, you know, strapped to his hip at one Mm. year old, uh, and my sister was on the way. I don't know if you've looked at the salaries of gym teachers lately, but, um, (laughs) so he discovered, he discovered very quickly that he could join the family business and construction and make considerably more uh, mm-hmm. money and so it was a it was a choice of necessity that's 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 how we ended up yeah as as a builder he eventually became very successful as a builder after some pretty barren years i can remember mm-hmm. very barren years in the late 80s and in the early 90s my father was per- was just perpetually in debt especially after my mother um left our family and mm-hmm. um left him financially really destitute. Uh, Wow. uh, We had, we had about a 10 year period there that was uh, barely survivable. I mean, it was Mm. nothing but stress and, and constant worries about, uh, you know, losing the house and my father borrowing money for Christmas presents and and things like that. He was always in debt. Um, he uh, he eventually worked his way out of all that. Um, uh, yeah, and then was killed uh, uh, right at the point where he was entering uh, what would have become, I think, the the best um, uh, the best portion of his life. Um, wow. So um, very bitter that very very bitter. Yeah. Gosh, man, that's rough. That's. Hard to hear. I'm so sorry. I want to talk a little bit more about that, though, if I if I could. Um, obviously, your father is or was very athletic, right? Worked with his hands, wanted to be a gym teacher. You are more of a man of letters. I don't know if you're an athlete at all, but obviously very literary oriented uh, person. Do you, do you see any um, significance in, in that difference in terms of the you and your father's differing relationships to the faith? It's a good question. I, I, I think about it sometimes and I, I don't think I ever come up with a really adequate answer. I don't know. I asked my father once why he never, um, why he never wanted to nurture me as a wrestler as he himself had been nurtured as a wrestler. And he simply said, because you never showed any interest in it. Mm. Um, and I think that's, I, I think that's true. I never showed any interest in wrestling. I don't know why. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I played baseball for a week. Um, I played basketball for a couple of years and no one ever thought to pull me aside and said, you're five feet eight. 
what are you doing? I just, <laughs> I, I just love to play. You know, Michael Jordan was a, was a big hero. Again, this was the mm-hmm. late eighties where Michael Jordan was a God and uh, to watch Michael Jordan um, was like, you know, watching Balanchine. I mean, it was just, you know, he leapt like ninjins, like Nijinsky leaps. I mean, it just, uh, it seems surreal to me. So uh, those were fun years. I, I wish someone had pulled me aside and said, you probably shouldn't try to be on a team and do all that. <laughs> you, look silly, you know, you look silly. Um, it's okay to play in the driveway, but, um, uh, but I, I, I didn't inherit any athleticism. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. My, my sport was a solo sport. I mean, I, my sport was weightlifting and, and bodybuilding. And I write about this in the hero's body, mm-hmm. which is not only about my father's, uh, fatal crash on a motorcycle, but about my, my teenage bodybuilding and, and weightlifting. And, uh, that was my sport. Um, it wasn't a team sport. Um, and, but you know what, wrestling is sort of an individual sport too, isn't it? I mean, it's just one guy against one guy on the mat. You're not a football team or a basketball team, uh, working together. You're, it's all you out there. So, um, in that then Luke, my father and I had some continuity, did we not? Um, the wrestler and, and the weightlifter are, are solo in their, uh, in their agencies. And so, uh, but in, in terms of, um, reading and writing my father, not at all. I mean, he, he, I can, I can remember Stephen King books by his bed. I can remember Anne Rice books by his bed. I can remember biographies of Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris uh, by his bed. Um, But we did not have a literary household. You have to understand that my family was not just unliterary, but anti-literary. It was something to be ridiculed and really well, it was feminizing. I mean, hmm. you know, poems are, you know, I come from an extremely traditional masculine town. And sure. The town is so masculine that the name of the town is Manville. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the name of the town. It's Man. It's Manville. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make this up, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so my father and I, um, there's, there's a lot of overlap there, um, but but I, I think we were probably more different than, 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 um, than alike, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just, um, and it's possible I'm totally barking up the wrong tree here. So you can, you can tell me if I'm way off base, but I just, I think of, we were talking about, you know, dogma versus aesthetics versus institution. Like, I wonder if maybe there's a fourth aspect that could be talked about here, especially with regards to, you know, more liturgical forms of worship, like the Catholic faith of the, the physicality of it, right? Of the kneeling, of the standing, of the, you know, the rosary, right? And I just, I wonder if um, for a certain type of person, which may or may not be your father, you know, just the, the physical routine is, you know, the tether connecting them to the faith. Does that make any sense or am I like totally off? It's essential to, to the Catholics uh, tether, if you will, to, uh, to his faith. I mean, Catholicism is the most ritualistic of Christian denominations and it's, it's ritualistic, not only in the, in, in the liturgy, as, as you mentioned, uh, or in the homilies, um, but the stations of the cross rosary, uh, Eucharist, um, 
Catholicism comes with a whole retinue of of mythos uh, attached to it. It's it's a, a denomination that gives the believer some agency in his own faith. It gives him some stake in his own soul. I mean, the Protestants are a bit lazy, aren't they? They think, well, <laughs> you're, you're chosen at birth or you're not, and there's nothing much you can do about it. If you're elected, you're elected, you're elected, you're elected and that's the grace of God. There's nothing we can say. So, you know, you know, damned or saved at birth, nothing you can do about it. And I think, oh, those lazy Protestants. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, the, the Catholic has some agency in his own destiny. Uh, he has some uh, say in the progress of his own soul. And uh, that's a big deal um, because it means you don't have to just sit back and accept or reject grace. It means that you can uh, have a hand in... Uh, your own deliverance if you choose. Now, none of that go is to say that one must buy in to all of the demands and the tenets of this global corporation called the Vatican. Uh, and so uh, uh, the second Va- the second Vatican Council was a, was was a big deal in terms of reforms and 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 making some headway into modernity. But um, I think that the central um, the, the central gist, at least for me, um, of Catholicism is that ritualistic and mythological um, aspect and mm-hmm. the physicality that you mentioned is extremely important. And I do like the connection that you made between the physicality of the wrestler, the physicality of the bodybuilder and the physicality of the Catholic Catholicism is a flesh centered faith at the center of Catholic ritual at the center of Catholic belief is this bruised and bloodied and battered body. It's mm-hmm. the, first thing, the first thing you see upon entering any church. And ours was a most gruesome Christ uh, with the blood coming out of the forehead from the, from the thorns, the spear wound in the side, the uh, stigmata in the feet and the, and the wrists. These were all gruesomely displayed at the front of our church. And so blood and flesh, mm-hmm. blood and flesh is at the very center of Catholic belief. And, and I don't find it gruesome at all. Um, but if, if blood and flesh is at the center of my own life too. Right. <laughs> it's, it's what I walk around with every day and, and it's what I'm trying to, to keep intact. I'm, my goal every day is to keep all my blood on the inside um, <laughs> and, and to keep all my, keep all my kids' blood on the inside too. Um, which when you have boys uh, like mine, isn't always easy to do. Uh, so, I mean, it's really a connection I'd never thought of before, actually, uh, though, Luke. I mean, before you said it, I, I had never considered it, but it's very true what you say. The physicality of the wrestler, the physicality of the bodybuilder. I talk about, I talk about in the hero's body, the religious or spiritual uh, program of the bodybuilder and how for the group of bodybuilders that I was associated with in the early 1990s in central Jersey, 
that this gang of, of bodybuilders was really replacing um, church, Christ, mm-hmm. mass, uh, mm-hmm. Pope, Vatican, all of it. We were replacing that with the gym. I mean, the gym became mm-hmm. our new our new church. And um, we were sort of fashioning ourselves into, into gods, into mini Christs, because we really tortured ourselves with, with these, our workout routines were absolutely draconian. Um, you know, I was part of a pretty hardcore bodybuilding set in central Jersey at this time. I mean, these were guys who were real barbarians in, in how they trained. I don't just mean their drug use. I, I, I mean, the, the, the ways in which they actually trained. I mean, guys would carry around buckets. They would train so hard they to the point of puking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it wasn't until many years later, writing the hero's body that I could look back and realize that, that we were all a bunch of seekers. We were all a bunch of spiritual seekers, except we just weren't doing it in the church anymore. And we weren't doing it through the dogmas. Um, from Rome anymore, but rather uh, we were making ourselves into um, our own kinds of, of tortured God men, you know, and that's the other real attraction of Christianity. It's why Christianity has been the most successful brand in human history. I mean, it's more successful than Apple and Coca-Cola combined. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's never been a more successful brand. Ask yourself why. It's the only religion that has at its center a tortured man god. Mm. And that's extremely important when you consider that most of humanity in most places for most of human history, people have suffered tremendously. Right. Right. So wherever, yeah. you, wherever you look, you find suffering. I don't know what's going on with the 1%. I, I don't know if they suffer or I don't even know if they're really people, the 1%. <laughs> but, they're lizard people is what they are they're lizard, they're lizard people. but i know that that for the rest of us um suffering can be uh tremendous and when you have at the center of your faith not just a god but a man hmm. um and a man who suffered tremendously and whose suffering is the deliverance that you require from your own that's extraordinarily attractive. Buddhism doesn't offer that. Hindu, Hinduism doesn't offer that. Judaism doesn't offer that. And so, um, I, I, I've, I've come really full circle in, in terms of accepting the metaphors and the symbols of of of, of Catholicism or mm-hmm. Christi- or Christianity as as a whole. For me, it is a, a symbolical or metaphorical, or if you will, aesthetical or poetical relationship. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a literal relationship for me. It's it's profoundly literary. I, I make no distinction, Luke, between um, literature and religion. None. Mm-hmm. That might be a good place to wind up. Let me ask you one more thing, and no. uh, then we'll close out. Um, I want to come back to what you said earlier about Christianity being rebellion. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Well, you know, I live in a, a highly in- intellectualized city. Um, sure. It's a highly progressive city. Um, we have churches here. Of course we do. 
the city of Boston began as a theocracy, mm-hmm. but it is no longer. Um, I don't meet uh, many uh, Christians. I meet a lot of PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, I meet a lot of scientists. I live down the street from MIT. I live around the corner from Harvard. I live just over the river from Boston University. And so um, a highly erudite and um, an intellectualized place. Professions of faith or professions of adherence to tradition aren't all that common. I don't see a lot of crosses around the necks of, of individuals. I don't see a lot of crosses hanging from the rearview mirrors of cars. And so it just seems to me that speaking only for myself, to, to be a professed Catholic, and even if I mean only cultural Catholic, and not necessarily believing Catholic, Catholicism for me is not of necessity a supernatural relationship. Mm-hmm. So... By rebellion, I, I don't mean an active rebellion or an ostentatious or obnoxious rebellion of the kind that I participated in when I was at the height of my Shelley and Nietzsche at 20 years old. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was quite obnoxious because <laughs> I, I, would, I would go around looking for debates with Christians so I could prove to them and quote my Nietzsche to them. Proving to them how, how wrong they are and um, how contradictory and ridiculous and, and all of this. Um, that's what I was like then as a rebel, if you will, although I was just tiresome and silly and, and, obnoxious, <laughs> and obnoxious. Is what I and everybody in their 20s is, right? <laughs> yeah. I more so, Luke. I, I more so. B- b- believe me, un- unbearable. You would have turned around and walked away. Um, uh but no, the kind of rebellion I mean now is very personal and, and um, private. You know, I, I, um, I, I am a, I'm a reader, again, of, of the Gospels. Um, I am reliant, again, on, on Catholic metaphor and, and symbol. Um, my oldest son wants to go to a Catholic high school and is becoming interested in who Christ is and what Christ means. Um, and I find it terrific. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm delighted. I, I, I really couldn't be more pleased that he's showing initiative toward that kind of uh, metaphorical uh, or spiritual understanding. Um, and when I talk to him about Christ and what Christ means, um, it's always, it's always literary. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's always either through Milton or through Aquinas or through Augustine, um, uh, or, or through, through the gospels, uh, which as I say, as I say, are, 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 are are literary uh, to me. Um, Mm -hmm. my, my teacher and friend and mentor, Harold, Harold Bloom, you know, never tired of saying that, um, 
that Christ, God, Yahweh, Muhammad, um, that these are literary characters, right? That, that, that you, you pray to them as you will, but they, but they are the equal of Macbeth and, and Hamlet. These are literary characters. Um, and he's got a beautiful book called uh, uh, The Names Divine about Yahweh and Jesus, in, in which he, he gets into this um, in some detail. But yeah, I, I mean, by rebellion, I, I, I just mean I don't see it a lot. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, you know, religion is, is, is dying in, in this country. We started as a, as a fanatically religious nation. Um, and um, it still survives, um, depending on where you are in the country. Kansas or Oklahoma is not, neither of those is, is Boston. So it really mm-hmm. has- it really has to do with 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 where um, we live, and we're not proselytizers in any way. I don't ever, you know, talk about faith or Catholicism unless someone calls me up and wants to put me on a podcast. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? I, I just I don't. Yeah. Sometimes it comes up with my students at BU. Sometimes it comes mm-hmm. up because those students read my memoir um, and they see the the Catholic mythos there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always very proud of the students who choose to write about um, the Catholic angle in that memoir. Um, I just graded a paper this morning, as a matter of fact, by by an extremely bright Kuwaiti student, a Muslim student who um, is truly brilliant. She she um, is is very educated not only in her own faith, Islam, but knows a lot about Judaism, and and turns out knows a lot about about. Christi- about Christianity and Catholicism. She had a, 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 a fantastic education in Kuwait um, at an American school there, an elite American school. And I was just blown away by her paper this morning, which is, is analyzing the Catholicism in, in my book. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just some brilliant stuff. So I'm, I'm always happy to, to see my students um, embrace embrace that because it's it takes a pretty sophisticated understanding um what what usually passes for catholicism is caricature mm-hmm. you hear the criticisms or and this is probably true for all faiths any criticisms of any faith i mean what they're criticizing is is typically the caricatures of those faiths mm-hmm. um because when you get down to it what religion asks of a an adherent is a pretty sophisticated understanding of of what a human being is um, mm. and what a human being is capable of. Um, mm. It was Feuerbach, the the great German philosopher Feuerbach, who who in a book called The Essence of Christianity right from the eighteen hundreds, he's got a, a wonderful. Uh, 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 thesis in, in that book, which essentially says that that God is a projection of human longing. That that we did that we didn't come from God. God came from us. Um, God, in other words, God is a literary invention, right? Is mm. is, is what Feuerbach is is speaking of? There, a projection of the human in, interiority onto the clouds, onto the sky, and you'll see mm. this, won't you? I mean. You know, Christ and, and Yahweh are are really, in, in a lot of places, belligerently human. I mean, they've got all, they run the mm-hmm. gamut of human emotions. You know what I mean? So for sure. Uh, so as you see, it's 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 
it's all very um, entwined and, mm -hmm. and, and complicated. I think it probably takes a lifetime to fully understand one's, one's faith, whether or not that faith is literal or whether or not that faith is metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it will continue to be uh, metaphorical. I don't expect mm -hmm. to, I don't expect to end up in some paradise, you know, holding hands and skipping with Christ down uh, golden <laughs> pathways. You know, I, I don't, um, I'm pretty sure that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, uh, all I can do uh, until I take my last breath is uh, honor um, the metaphors and the symbols that help me make sense of my own life and its place in this world. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so to clarify, if I came to Boston and visited the local Catholic parish, would I see you at mass or not? <laughs> well, um, I have to say you might because uh, my oldest son, um, part of the uh, requirement for uh, Catholic school is to have a parish, is to have a mm -hmm. Catholic school. So they want to know what is what is our parish. And so um, in about a week here, we're going we're gonna to choose one. So depending on which one you walk into, Luke, uh, you very well <laughs> might, might see me there, uh, friend. All right, let me ask you one more question and then we'll close up. Aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? Oh, um, that the mind is is never made up, is it? I mean, <laughs> uh, even even when we we make it up, it's never fully made up. I mean, we have these ma malleable minds, or or I should say we better. Um, uh, once someone tells you he's absolutely certain of something, um, you, you should probably be talking to somebody else. So, so, <laughs> so uh, it, it was humbling. I think. I mean, for for me, I, I spent my twenties pretty pretty sure that atheism was um, correct and that tradition was bunk, um, and uh, you know that arrogant twenty year old is is sort of humbled now. I think. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I, I think that's probably the lesson that, it, that anyone should take when, when one changes one's mind, um, on an issue that's this enormous and mm -hmm. this, and this consequential mm -hmm. that the mind is, is never truly made up. Not if you're thinking, not if you're growing, not if you're, mm -hmm. not if you're, you're thinking on all eight cylinders, um, the, the constant self challenge and self-debate i'm constantly having debates inside myself i talk to myself all the time I'm, I, I mean out loud i'm talking to myself yeah. my kids will say who are you talking to, you talking to? <laughs> and and i'm i'm debating you know I'm, I'm talking to myself and trying to you know talk through both sides of it to see where i can come down um and on this issue of belief unbelief um, transcendence, no transcendence, deliverance, damnation. I'm in a constant dialogue with myself. So mm. ooh, I, there might very well be another episode where I've changed my mind again. Um, <laughs> so I, pre 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 prepare for that. I can't be sure that that won't happen. We'll keep you in the Rolodex. Um. <laughs> All right. I have three um, questions I, I ask all my guests, this being a, a philosophical podcast 
like literally that's how it's categorized on iTunes or whatever. But um, I like to, I, I want to poke at these questions of how do we know truth and how do we know ourselves? We were already kind of on this. So let's just keep going. First question is what is identity? Does everyone have an identity and how do you know your identity? What do you think? I think I don't use the word identity because it seems a frivolous thing to me. Um, one can change identities the way one can change clothes. Mm. Uh, and identity. I think I actually agree with you about that. <laughs> and, and identity is is a flavor of the month. Um, mm-hmm. I prefer a different a different term, um, which is selfhood. Mm. And for me, a selfhood is the 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 the, the consummate self. If you can take the thoughts in your head and the emotions in your heart and the instincts in your gut. And if you could put those three together, you might have something that looks a lot like the soul. Hmm. And when I say selfhood, I really do mean not just a changeable um, identity, um, which certainly can be included in that selfhood, but I mean something much more substantial and something much more grounded. Um, hmm. the, 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 the person that's not changeable, right? The, 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 the essence of you, your entire character, um, the word identity is, is been polarized and politicized and has, come to mean really almost anything you want it to mean and and something that can mean anything to mean means almost nothing so um i teach my students to 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 think in terms of selfhood um and to write in terms of selfhood Uh, i try to get them to um think about um the the solider substance of a selfhood um and hey identities are great you can try on different things you can be with um one identity one week and and another identity the next week i think what's unchangeable is 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 the soul underneath all of that Mm. and um that's what i prefer to um to focus on to, to talk about and 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 to think about um, I don't force those definitions on on anybody. I don't force that definition on my students. I I simply introduce um, the idea of a selfhood and how it differs from an identity. Um, mm. See and see what they think about it, and and see what they, what they have to say about it. Uh, and they often they often bring me back some pretty some pretty enlightening things. All right, let me ask you this: What is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Well, I wish someone would define this, this one thing called human nature. I, I, read, <laughs> I read this, um, I read this uh, phrase a lot, human nature, human nature. Uh, and I always, I always whisper to myself, oh, there's only one, is there? Okay. Um, <laughs> there, there's, pro- there's probably as, as many human natures as there are uh, human beings, probably. Mm. Um, if there's something um, that we all share, the desire to uh, be accepted, to be loved, the need for certain kinds of fulfillment. I mean, we all of us have certain things in common, no matter what pocket of the globe you're in. So I, I think this, this, 
this idea of human nature. I mean, it's a, it's it is a it's a pretty metaphysical term, right? I mean, w- w- what what is this nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it really does assume um, that all human beings have uh, the same substance, and of course we don't. So I think I think I would be happier with the term if we could just put an S on it. Anyway, that's been my experience in, in the world. Um, um, what are the commonalities that we have outside of our desires to belong and to be loved? We can look to human evolution if we want to answer what human nature means. I mean, how did the human being evolve on the African savanna when we first emerged some 200,000 years ago after millions of years of Darwinian natural selection away from away from the great apes. Um, what, what were those first uh, homo sapiens like? What, 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 what enabled them to survive? What defined them? And what we see is that what defined them was group solidarity and, mm-hmm. and the necessity of belief. Shelley's great defense of atheism is called the necessity of atheism. But if you look at the early human being, what you have is the necessity of belief and the necessity of, of, of unity and solidarity. If those early human beings did not cooperate, they were dead. Mm-hmm. And it was our tribalism and our ability to work together that ensured our survival. And so whenever I hear the word human nature, I always think of human evolution. Mm-hmm. And I think that the question can be answered by simply looking at those first homo sapiens and what defined them, because what defined them still defines us. All right. And finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? And how do you know when you found truth? What do you think? I teach a a memoir in my memoir class. It's my favorite American memoir. It's a book by Lauren Slater. And the book is called Lying. Mm -hmm. And the book is about the metaphorical epilepsy, an epilepsy that she probably never had, but she tells her life story through the lens of epilepsy Mm. and writes of her life as if she had epilepsy, but she's constantly toying with the reader and she's playing with this concept of universal truth and personal truth. Is it universally true or shall we say objectively true? that Lauren Slater has epilepsy? No. Is it personally true or shall we say subjectively true that Lauren Slater has epilepsy? You're not gonna tell her any different. She will tell you that she is an epileptic because she has Mm. felt epileptic. In other words, convulsive and spastic uh, Mm. life. Um, And so it's a question I think about because I teach that question when we uh, read this book. But I should tell you this, anyone who uh, tells you that he has the definition of truth, um, don't believe him. Um, uh, he's lying. Uh, uh, if, if you want to say that it's true that today is Wednesday, well, is that true or is that a fact? I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what's the difference between, between a truth and the truth, right? Kant had a hard time figuring this out. We're not going to solve it here. Uh, uh, Hegel, Hegel is still working on it. 
Uh, so, so, so uh, I think the best, I think the best that we can do is, um, is to live our, our, uh, our subjective truths um, and try to understand where those truths overlap with the truths um, of, of others. Um, and I, I think what, what this really comes down to is, um, is having a, a, a kind of reverence um, for the, the variety of, of, of human living. Um, uh, is Christianity true? I, I can't answer that. I, I know I know that the metaphors are true for me, mm. you know, but I can't mm. I can't force those metaphors upon anybody else. And when I say that the metaphors are true for me, what do I mean? I mean that they work for me. Mm. They mm. they help me they help me put my own selfhood in the perspective that I need in order to fully comprehend who I am and what I want. And um, truth, whether you put uh, a, a, an indefinite or a definite article in front of it, um, is a wily, a wily concept because the truth is always changing, isn't it? Do you remember mm -hmm. at one time in human history, it was true that the sun went around the earth and it took a whole Copernican revolution in order to show that that truth um, was in fact a falsehood. And so truths are constantly turning into falsehoods and, and falsehoods are always turning into truths. I read the national security advisor the other day say that it's quite possible and maybe even likely that all of those unidentified flying objects are in fact um, UFOs from other galaxies. And I thought, I hope you're right. <laughs> now, 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 now we now we have a different kind. Of, now we have a different kind of truth, right? Because hmm. it's it's supposed to be just um, Venus or Mars, or right, or swamp gas or whatever yeah. uh, that people are are seeing. Um, you know, misidentified planes or whatever. No, they're they're. It's quite possible that they're extraterrestrials. I find I find this exciting. I hope she's right. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, William, it really has been a joy talking to you. Um, I really you. appreciated it. Yeah. Um, before we go, do you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your writing? Well, I have a modest website and it's just wgeraldi.com. Um, uh, my books are there. Uh, the Netflix film is there. Um, I have a page with all my articles on it and essays. Um, I don't maintain my own website, so I, I never know what's really on there, if all my work is being put on there or not, but um, it seems pretty complete uh, to me. Um, I have a new book coming out in the fall. It's a, it's a, um, a satirical, uh, absurdist comedy of, of a sort of, about American celebrity. Um, the book is called About Face. Um, and it's about a Tony Robbins-like guru, um, a charismatic, a, a healer, um, uh, and uh, the ridiculous life that, that he leads. So um, that was three years in the making. And um, I think Norton's putting it out in, in the fall. So that's, that's uh, next on board. 
Right on. Congratulations on that. All right. Well, this has been Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. You can email the podcast at changedmymindpod at gmail. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at changedmindpod. And I will see you next time. It is reasonable to guess that William has probably forgotten more about weightlifting than I will ever know. Um, However, I have taken up weightlifting uh, very, very recently, um, just in the last few months. And it is kind of incredible how much it has changed the way I think and feel. Um, It was, you know, it's not that I was not active before. Um, You know, I was a roller skating fan. I did a lot of roller skating. I, you know, I have a, I have a rowing machine that I use from time to time. I have several fitness video games, uh, which may be the dorkiest thing in the world, but whatever, they're fun. Don't judge me. Um, but I never felt all that different, uh, because of them. Um, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. I'm definitely, uh, if not on the downhill side of life, at least heading in that direction. (laughs) Um, and I had gotten very resentful of my body in the last five or 10 years, you know, like it hurts to bend over. Why does it hurt to bend over? It hurts to squat. Why does it hurt to squat? You know, like, why, why do I, I don't deserve this. You know, <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. Um, but I was sick of, uh, I was sick of gaining weight, you know? Um, so I, I had heard that one good way to lose a few inches around the waist was to just do some barbell exercises, uh, lift some weights. So I got myself a barbell and I started lifting it. You know, there's, I looked it up. There's about 13 basic exercises that work out all the muscle groups in your body. So it was, once I had the barbell, it was super easy to just kind of put a TV show on and just cycle through the barbell exercises until the show was over. And, you know, it was rudimentary, uh, not obsessive bodybuilding, not the sort of thing you need to lug a bucket around for. But after just a week or two of that, it was kind of incredible how different I felt. Like I no longer dreaded having to bend over, having to squat down. Um, All my joint pain is gone. All my muscle pain is gone, or at least most of it. You know, I legitimately feel 10 years younger. My thinking is clearer, you know, Um, and it's all thanks to just using my body to its full potential a little more. Um, which to be clear, the full potential of my body is not that impressive. (laughs) Um, you know, I am a nerdy 36 year old. I have never been a star athlete and never will. Um, I am definitely rocking the dad bod these days. Um, but 
using my body at all, you know, just making time every day to lift those weights really makes a huge difference in how, how good I feel and how clear my thinking is. Um, and it's just a reminder that we are, like it or not, completely tied to our biology, you know? Um, there's a real tendency um, in modern thought to think of people as like disembodied brains, like the body is just a servant of the brain. You're a ghost in the machine. Um, but that's, I mean, in a very real sense, that's absolutely not true. You know, your body's fate is your fate and you can't escape it. And if that doesn't seem true to you right now, my guess is you're probably in your 20s or your teens. Um, as your life goes on, I think you become more and more aware that your body's limits are your own limits. And maybe there's a sense that that's empowering, um, sense of like, I can make myself as good as I can be, but in a much more fundamental sense, it should be humbling. Just this realization that my body's limits are my own limits. You are but dust and to dust you shall return. Anyway, that's it for this week. If you like the show, if you like what I'm doing, uh, please consider supporting the Patreon. If you support us at $3 a month, you get early access to episodes. At $5 a month, you get a bonus episode every month. These are full hour-long interviews I do with um, all sorts of guests who you will not hear unless you uh, support the show. And if you support us at the $10 a month level, you get VIP access to the top secret meetings between me and my producer. They're not really top secret, but you can come to those and you can offer ideas. You can be a fly on the wall. You can do whatever you want. Um, if you don't have any spare change lying around, please at least consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. It's always good to have more reviews out in the world. If you write one, I will read it on the air. I will make you internet famous. Your friends will be amazed. You can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com. You can visit us on Twitter at changedmindpod, or you can tweet at me at Luke T. Harrington. Always happy to hear from listeners. Please feel free. Changed My Mind is produced by Blake Collier. It is edited by Jonathan Clausen, and it is presented by the Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind, and please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.